science fiction novel, The Nowhere Navy. Decorated officer Frank Ortega reaches his final duty station. An aging Navy Corvette, the ISS Persistent, stationed in a solar system on the furthest edge of colonized space. Located light years from the war front against the mysterious enhancers, the Persistent is crewed by a motley collection of fleet rejects and raw recruits. Life aboard the ship remains slack and unmilitary until they receive a shocking signal. Most of the rest of the fleet was destroyed in a major battle. The Persistent is left alone to guard its solar system against the inevitable invasion they have no chance of stopping. The Nowhere Navy is available on Amazon.com in both Kindle and paperback formats. Thank you. Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 37 of Unknown Orbits, Scanners Live in Vain by Cordwainer Smith. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitzey. Today's tale is one of the highly regarded classic stories of Golden Age of Science Fiction. It was one of the stories collected in the first volume of the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. It tells the story of scanners. In this future story, conscious humans cannot travel through space because of an effect called the great pain of space, which causes death and agony. So the only way that space travel is possible is through artificial hibernation. But someone has to crew the ship. So the solution that society comes up with is to create what are called Habermans. These are convicted criminals who have undergone surgical procedures to sever almost all their sensory nerves, rendering them unable to hear, smell, or feel. Now, the main character of this is a scanner named Martel. The story begins, he is home on leave, and when scanners are home on leave, they go through a procedure called cranching, which temporarily restores their senses to a state of normality so they can enjoy their life briefly. And while he's home on leave, the leader of the scanners calls an emergency meeting for all scanners, and he's required to attend as well. The emergency is that a scientist named Adam Stone has created a new method of traveling through space that does not require scanners that can make space travel safe for regular people. And of course, this is a great threat to the guild of scanners. It's going to eliminate all of their jobs, and these poor people have been permanently disfigured in order to be able to do that job. So there's a great deal of upheaval within the scanner community about this new change. And the leader decides that the way to deal with this is to kill the scientist who developed this new technology. So Martel, because he's cranched and he's not in the same state as his fellow scanners, is able to see things a little more clearly. And he decides to intercept the assassin before he reaches a scientist, and he winds up killing the assassin. And in the process, he himself is wounded. And when he awakes, he discovers that the government decided to repair all of the scanners 
and provide them with an income so that they would be taken care of and then they would just go forward with this new technology. That's the basic story premise. I'm a big fan of Cordwainer Smith, who, by the way, his real name is Paul Leinbarger. We talked about Paul Leinbarger in a previous episode, episode 16, his other story, The Game of Rat and Dragon. But just to kind of catch up to those of you who might have missed that episode, he worked with the CIA during World War II. He developed the manual on psychological warfare. He's a psychologist by trade. And I love his writing. It's very different. It's stylized. His world that he created, The Instrumentality of Mankind, which is a future history series. It's a bunch of stories loosely connected through this future history. And to try to go into detail of what that entails is extremely difficult because it's very, very complex, which is typical of his writing, which is, as I said, is very stylized and kind of complex. So I love this story. I can see why it's a classic. I love the idea of these poor scanners being mutilated so that the rest of humanity can travel to the stars. I think that's a great concept. I gather you didn't share my enthusiasm. No. I'm going to be kind and say I think this is a story that a lot of people see good things in and they remember the good things. And maybe they read a lot of themselves into the story. I don't think it's a great story. I don't think it's constructed well. I think there are real problems with it. If I was an editor and someone gave me this, I would tell him you need another rewrite and you need to take the ending. And the ending is, I feel, abrupt. I could kind of see that. It's a classic situation where he's wounded, he passes out, and he wakes up, everybody's living happily ever after. Yeah. And because I feel people are reading more into the story than is really there, I'm going to call this a Chauncey Gardner story. Chauncey Gardner, please explain, for those of our listeners who don't know the reference. Well, about 40 years ago, there was a movie called Being There, starring Peter Sellers, and it was one of his last roles. He did some very serious acting, and the plot was that a millionaire dies, and when they're cleaning up his house, they discover that he had an illegitimate son who had mental problems. And the millionaire kept the kid hidden until he is now middle-aged and acts as the gardener for the estate. And every time he talks to someone, he's expressing very, very simple thoughts that everyone else thinks is high philosophy. And that's what I mean by reading out of something more than is actually there. I love that movie, by the way. Obviously, I don't agree with you. And we're going to get into this a little bit here. To me, one of the things that I really love about the instrumentality of mankind future history series is the world building of it. And I'm, I'm a big fan of world building. I'm probably more willing to overlook things if I really love the world building. I enjoy world building too, but one of my criticisms of this is he does the dirty trick of dropping in terms for things and never explaining them. So you're talking about exposition to some degree. In this case... You think it's unnecessary exposition that he puts in terms that he doesn't explain, for instance. Yes, I'd like to read a sentence from here. He's being questioned on entering the city, and he answers, yes, I am a man and not all these other things. Martel knew that the timber of his voice had been good. He hoped that it would not be taken for that of a mansion jagger or a beast or an unforgiven one 
who with mimicry sought to enter the cities and ports of mankind. Neither mansion jagger or beast or unforgiven one ever come up again. And I'm going to defend that practice. I think when you're writing science fiction or fantasy and you're dealing with imaginary worlds, I think it is perfectly okay to toss in odd terms and odd names. Because if it's not critical to understanding the plot, and in this case, having read some of the instrumentality of mankind, I do know what he's referring to is, in this future world, there's these rampaging machines and monsters out there in the wild in between the cities that attack people and occasionally try to infiltrate. So I understand what that reference means, but that has nothing to do with the story. So do you mean that this story is part of the instrumentality and always was? Let's go back and give a little bit of background on this one. This was his first professionally published story in 1950 in a magazine called Fantasy Book, which was a short-lived, semi-professional magazine. So this is literally his first real story. It just so happened that Frederick Pohl also had a story published in that very obscure magazine. And because of that, he read the story, really liked it, And then he had it included in an anthology, a very popular anthology called Beyond the End of Time a few years later. And it was because of that anthologization that Scanners Live in Vain came to the attention to the wider science fiction community and became a highly regarded and important piece of work. So this was his first story. As he went on and wrote more stories, he was developing this world of the future with all the strange aspects to it. And like I said, for me to sit here and try to explain to you what the instrumentality of man is all about is almost impossible because it's so complicated and strange and weird. Getting back to your main point, as a writer, I have no problem doing that kind of thing. Dropping in little pieces of world building that don't necessarily have anything to do directly with the story you're telling at the moment. It adds color to your story. It adds a layer of reality to the world that you're building, I think. Normally, I would agree with you, but there's something about that paragraph that made me bother to try to remember and keep track so that I would find out what they were later. Yeah, and then you were frustrated when they never appeared again in the story. Right. When you drop in something unexplained, don't you think it should be in a context so you have at least some idea? The guy is walking down the street and a skitteradoo comes charging down the gutter and he quickly leaps back a foot and watches as it passes by. We're not explaining exactly what it is, but you get a good idea that it's some kind of vermin. It's a fair point. And Cordwainer Smith may not be for everyone because, as I said, his writing is somewhat stylized. I did have a fit over some of his overly formal phrasing. Yes, again, that's a fair point. And his character's dialogue is not a strongest point because sometimes the dialogue is stilted and declamatory. Yes. You know, where they're declaiming something. I'm trying to think of an example, like something from Shakespeare, where it's like, verily comes the spaceship. It's a stylized form of writing that... If you buy into it, which is what I have done, it adds that richness to the storytelling that I like. 
but I can certainly see where a lot of other people might not buy in like I do. Let's go with an example. He has leapt from earth to earth and has just now returned. I knew him well, and I seek him out. I have word of his kith. May the instrumentality protect us. Yes, yes. Guilty, guilty, guilty. So that brings up the whole issue of world building. And I'd like to talk for a little bit about world building. This is an extreme example, I think, of world building, the instrumentality of mankind, where he created an extremely complex and baroque, really, world. And some people like that. An example that I would point to that most of our listeners probably are not familiar with would be E.R.R. Edison's The Worm Ouroboros, which was a fantasy novel published in the 1920s, which has this very complex, semi-mythological fantasy world written in a Shakespearean style of writing. So it's a very dense book to read. And the world building is fairly dense. But for people of certain taste, that's half the fun, is immersing yourself into a richly detailed world in a form of writing that's highly stylized. That's an aesthetic choice that some people appreciate and enjoy, and some people don't. I wonder if Cordwainer Smith ever had contact with John W. Campbell, because Heinlein had a future history, Isaac Asimov had a future history, and Cordwainer Smith had more or less a future history. I want to say I thought he may have submitted this to Campbell and it was rejected, but either way, knowing what I know about Cordwainer Smith, or Paul Leinberger, I should say, and if you want to to hear more about his interesting background, I would recommend listening to episode 16. He was not the type of person to be strongly influenced by someone like John W. Campbell. I mean, he had a PhD in psychology. He had served in the war. John W. Campbell did not serve in the war. I don't see him being pushed around in the way that Campbell pushed around some of his other writers. Yeah, you have a point. So when you begin world building, I think there's always a lot of choices that you have to make. And when you're writing science fiction, a big part of world building is deciding on what science to go with. And I think we've talked about this in some detail in previous episodes, but I just want to touch on it again, that you have to make choices in terms of, okay, how, how does interstellar travel work in my world? What kind of a political system exists in my world? I have a little bit of a problem with world building. I just keep going and going, and I want to answer all the possible questions of the world, the coinage, the economy, how it works, because I have this compulsion to make sure that it works, that someone's not going to come along and say, well, you can't possibly have this thing your plot hinges on because you said earlier that the economy or politics works a different way. You know, and that's one way to go. I think what I learned in doing my first science fiction novel was that you have to make choices that support the story. So I think that applies with world building as well, is that you have to build a world that serves the purpose of the story that you're telling. No, I agree with that. I don't think it's good to go as far as I tend to do. It's better if 
say you're talking about an economic system. You just casually mention a coinage here and a bill there, and you never explain much beyond that. Okay, now that kind of contradicts what you said earlier when you were complaining about the terms that Smith dropped into his story and didn't explain. But you know it's money still. Okay, yeah. So you're saying that he dropped these terms in there and you had no idea what he was referring to. Somehow in the way he used them, he convinced me that I was going to have to remember these things. And you know what? I think you're probably right. There's a simple way to address that, and that's to put in some simple parenthetical reference. You know, like a little line of text that gives some context to what you just said. So if he would have said the Martian Jaggers and the Beasts and the Unknowable, I forget exactly what he said, and then you go, comma, who just the day before had killed three people in the city. Yes, that's all I'm asking for. That's all you would have needed. And by the way, you mentioned parenthetical comma, and you had me going for a little while, because... No one should ever, ever, ever use parentheses in a work of fiction. It drives me crazy. I don't. Typically, I don't. Dashes, yes. Yes, yes. Parentheses. Which often you can actually substitute one for the other. But here's my rule. You should use parentheses in fiction about as often as you would use a fire extinguisher. (laughs) And the problem with parentheses is that it breaks the spell between the reader and the writer. That it's almost like the writer is whispering in your ear. That's exactly why I hate it so much. Yeah, that's a valid point. So when it comes to world building, you can have an extremely Baroque world like this, the instrumentality of mankind, or you can have a very grounded world. I think a great example of that, it comes from fantasy. It's outside of the Golden Age for us, but uh, George R.R. Martin's Fire and Ice Game of Thrones series, which is very grounded in reality. Yeah, there's dragons and zombies in it, but the rest of it is all very everyday and grounded. And I'm sure there's other examples in science fiction of that where the world building is very grounded. I'm at a loss for the moment of thinking of any. Are there any that come up in your memory that very grounded worlds? Hal Clement would have the science behind his worlds really nailed down, but he didn't do a lot of societal world building, if you know what I mean. And that's the great thing about the 50s, the 1950s, was that a lot of writers began coming in who were writers first and science fiction writers second. So they were not as focused as someone like Hal Clement would have been on making sure the science was perfect or spelled out very well. We've run into a lot of stories, especially from the astounding crowd, that were so detailed in their science that it interrupted the flow of the storytelling. The Venus equilateral stories, which we also did an episode on, didn't he actually commit the sin of, well, as you know... Yes. Yeah. And then they would go into a lengthy discussion of the technical aspects of beam transmission. Um, oh, yes. He really was Involving vacuum tubes. He was very into beams. Yes. So, you know, you can go that direction. Oh, we were just talking about Cities in Flight by James Blish. We just did in episode 34. In that book, he actually has formulas when he talks about... The spin-dizzy technology, the anti-gravity technology that allows cities to be lifted off the Earth and to fly out through space, Blish actually puts formulas in 
the text and, and explains, you know, what these formulas mean. And it's all BS because the spin dizzy technology was already pretty much proven to not be a real thing. Yeah, at, I think at that the, point. Oh, well, we covered that. Yeah, we've covered that in a previous episode. So you have that choice, though, as a writer. Do you want to really be a hard science fiction writer and really explain the science and make everything accurate? Do you want to be grounded, but be grounded in a human way where your characters feel like real people and their motivations and their flaws are thought out well ahead and drive the story? Or do you want to be like Cordwainer Smith and make some crazy, baroque, wild universe that is kind of dense to penetrate sometimes? Whenever I go too far in world building, I always think of Lord of the Rings. Now, he was successful. The the greatest example of world building ever. But it took him how many years to write? Decades. Because he did everything. Language and maps and, and history. Right. I had a story where I had what I thought was a clever variation on money. And my money worked in a certain way and immediately brought up the problem of giving people change. And I thought about this for like three days trying to solve it until I thought, well, you know, maybe no one in my story will ever get change. I'm in control of that. Now, was this a future world? Yes. Well, here's a question to throw at you to screw this whole thing up. Don't you think in a future world it would be a cashless society? I thought of that. Now... So answering the question of why it's not a cashless society and why coins would even be a thing, I think that's an interesting question to answer by itself. There's a practical reason that some people have to use cash money, not everyone. Now, see, that's a cool idea. Because maybe you're getting into different classes. Yes. So the upper classes have the luxury of not having to worry about whether they have correct change. And there's all kinds of basic fundamental things that on the lower levels, they have to have correct change. Like you get on a bus. If you don't have correct change, you can't get on a bus. You can't get to work. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah, that's a cool idea. And that's an example of the world building being central to your story and your story driving the world building. It's kind of a chicken and the egg problem sometimes in some cases. As you're thinking about the story, you come up with these ideas, but then before you write it, do you figure all of this out and you write it down and you get it all ironed out? Or do you say, well, I've got the basic idea. I'm going to sit down and start writing and I'm going to see where it takes me. And maybe the process of writing is going to help me to build the world more organically. Well, that's just someone's approach to writing itself. Now, you dive in with a rough idea of where you're going. While I want to know every last twist and turn before I started typing. That's the seat of the pantsers versus the outliners. But when it comes to world building... Well, world building you can do on the way as well. I just get it consistent. So, for instance, when I was writing my Beatnik Spy series, which is set in the 1950s, I did a lot of research ahead of time on the historical aspects, the geography of the places I was having the adventures take place in. So having prepared by having like a journal filled with background information, little details. I I used to call them crap nuggets. They were like these little facts, these little pieces of history or locale that I would drop into the 
story, much like what you were complaining about earlier about the terms that he didn't explain. No, that's still different. That's different. No, it is, it, but if I'm reading a book it's about... It's the same thing, but it's done better because what I was doing was dropping in true history stuff into the narrative to flesh out the world and to make you feel closer to actually being there. So I did the opposite of what Cordwain or Smith did in right. the story, is I not only put in elaborated information, but it was factually correct. For instance, one of the characters that I put in the second book, The Godhead Formula, was an actual person. He was a naval officer in the Argentina Navy, and he had been in a book that I read in preparation for this series that was a true story of this couple that drove a aqua car, an amphibious car, all the way from Mexico to the tip of South America. And this is one of the people they met in the book, and I put him in my story because he would have been the naval officer for that base at the time. So I used him. Not that anybody cares beyond me, perhaps, but having that level of detail... I think it gives a degree of authenticity to your world building. I think to drop in little known facts gives you more authority. Yeah, authority. That's a perfect word to use in conjunction with world building because I think that's what you're trying to do as a writer is you're using your world building and complexity and the depth of it to establish authority as a storyteller. So we've all read bad fiction that had bad world building in it it's either extremely derivative yeah or it's just not very well thought out and that totally undermines the reading experience because you're like well this world sounds like a bunch of crap to me because basic scientific information is being misrepresented or talking about things that aren't physically possible just bad world building that lacks authority. You remind me of a lot of stories about a future utopia. They invariably spend a lot of time explaining how this great future utopia works. And as an experienced adult, you're reading this saying, people would never act that way. Yeah. Everybody just suddenly woke up one day and decided to live in peace with one another. In, in 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 ropes. Yeah, in to- togas. togas. I'm sorry. Can I say that again? <laughs> togas. Yeah, that's a great example. These utopian stories are, usually have very bad world building. You know, there's a lot of philosophy. H.G. Wells, he was oh, yeah. infamous for that. When he stopped being a great writer and stopped writing good science fiction and just started writing these utopian diatribes that were him promoting his ideas on social organization and politics and philosophy. You just he was no longer a very interesting writer anymore. And here was a guy who had done some great world building. You think about the War of the Worlds, the Martians, how well thought out the yeah. Martians were and their machines and great stuff. So do you have any additional thoughts on world building? I think the problem sometimes with world building is that it itself is so much fun. It's hard to remember when to stop. It's addictive. I know. I can get carried away in world building and spend hours and hours on world building that I should be spending on writing. And that's why I think the way that I do it is to do a basic amount of research 
And with science fiction, I don't worry too much about the science up front. I figure I'll come in and work the science afterwards. And it's more important to sit down and start writing because the act of writing will help you complete your world building because you're building it around the story. But then as a science fiction writer versus a fantasy writer or anything else, afterwards you have to look at it and say, okay, where do I need to get the science right here? You know, another variation of world building is in time travel stories because you have to establish what your rules are. You can be very casual about it, not worry about consequences, or you can work out your own set of rules of how time works and answer all those great time questions. This makes me think we should do a whole episode on the various sets of time travel rules that different authors have done. Absolutely. We'll find the appropriate story to work off of. I like that idea because there's a lot that we could talk about when it comes to the world building of time travel stories. Yeah. All right. That's it for episode 37. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.